This podcast is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow sells the most inverters in the world. It is now a leading supplier right here in the Americas as well. It has the world's most powerful 250-kilowatt, 1,500-volt string inverter, providing disruptive technology for utility-scale solar and battery projects. Find out more at sungrowpower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I am Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, we've gone from drought to flood. People who care about climate change have spent the last three presidential election cycles cajoling, prodding, and begging television news outlets to cover the issue. It seemed the more pressure mounted, the less coverage there actually was. Across all three debates between Clinton and Trump in 2016, environmental issues got just under five and a half minutes of airtime. And in 2016, the major networks talked about climate for just 50 minutes combined across the entire year. And then suddenly, we got CNN's town hall, a seven-hour extravaganza that broke the broken TV debate model and actually allowed candidates some time to tease out the nuances of their plans. And boy, were there a lot of plans. So in this episode... In a nod to the format, we have a seven-hour episode analyzing every moment of the town hall. Hmm. So clear your schedule, strap in, and keep driving that electric vehicle around. (laughs) Catherine, I presume you have refreshments lined up and you've told members of Congress that you can't meet with them today. Absolutely. And I have a bunch of really uh, smart kids here to ask me some questions. (laughs) That's Catherine Hamilton. She is our co-host and the chair of 38 North Solutions. Jigger, you can tell all those sovereign wealth fund managers to hold their money for another day. You've got seven (laughs) hours of podcasting to do. I like it. Jigger Shaw is the president of Generate Capital, another co-host. And Leah Stokes, I hope you canceled classes for the day and put a sign up telling your students there are no office hours. Yep, I'm ready for another seven hours. I already did the first one, so uh, I'm ready for the next <laughs> installment. And that is Dr. Leah Stokes, an assistant professor of political science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. If you're a listener of GTM's other podcast, The Interchange, you will be very familiar with her voice. She and I recently had a great discussion about how the electorate feels about the Green New Deal, where candidates stand in relation to polling and corporate influence on energy policy. And that was such a popular episode. We wanted to bring Leah back here with the entire gang to sort through the insane amount of details that we suddenly have on the table. Leah is one of the go-to people on energy and climate politics to have this conversation. So obviously I'm kidding about a seven-hour podcast, but we're definitely going to go all in on this subject today. Leah, uh, you've been blowing up on Twitter lately, penning these fantastic threads that dissect each candidate's ideas and plans. Which of your Twitter threads got the most reaction, and does it match up with how that candidate is doing in the polls? Um, That's an interesting question. Well, um, When Kamala Harris uh, put a bill in Congress, which was sort of related to her um, climate plan with um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC retweeted me. So that thread got viewed by more than a million people. Um, So that was very intense. And that was about sort of how 
environmental laws historically have left behind communities of color. And that's what the environmental justice uh, field is all about. And so the idea behind that bill that Harris and um, Ocasio-Cortez introduced was to try to create a sort of scorecard so that when you were putting a climate or environment bill through Congress, you had to think about who it was going to impact and sort of differential impacts. So that got a lot of followers. And then um, my Yang thread about Andrew Yang got the most engagement, I would say, which I suppose is not surprising because the Yang gang is highly online, very online, and uh, very enthusiastic about their candidates. So they definitely um, came out to play and share their views on thorium and uh, geoengineering and lots of other exciting topics. So, um, you know, all the threads have kind of had different sorts of engagement. When I wrote a thread about Biden, it got picked up by the Washington Post. Um because some of that plan was kind of cribbed from some industry documents uh, that other people pointed out. So, yeah, it's been quite a road. Uh, it's been quite a roller coaster here um, doing these Twitter threads, that's for sure. Well, well, we'll pick a few of them and put them in the show notes. And then we'll, we'll also link to this Washington Post article that you wrote summarizing a lot of the candidate plans. So what I want to do with this conversation is, is try to get at framing. Did this town hall advance the narrative? Uh, did the candidates advance the narrative? The impact, does this change the campaign in any way? And substance, who is the best on this issue? Catherine, remind us how we got here. Like, how did we end up with a seven-hour conversation on CNN called the Climate Crisis Town Hall. Jay Inslee. <laughs> uh, Jay Inslee and the Sunrise Movement, too. All of them put pressure on the DNC to do something on climate because it, it turned out that the questions that were asked during the debates were just, they were lame questions and there were so few of them. And it didn't give the candidates a chance to really explain their positions or their plans on climate. So some, some of them started putting out plans. And Jay Inslee was, of course, the one that everybody's been calling the gold standard. But he had a relentless drumbeat of we need to have a bigger conversation about this. And so finally, they decided to do a town hall and give seven hours to it. So each candidate got maybe 40 minutes of questions from both CNN uh, reporters as well as from hand-picked folks in the audience. And it was terrific. It was terrific. I could not watch the whole thing because I was in Toronto at a meeting, but luckily Leah was there <laughs> tweeting and, um, and I was able to go back and read everything she had written. Leah, uh, there are so many of us in like climate journalism and advocacy um, in the business community that have been calling on people in, in, in academia that have been calling on these you know television outlets to talk about climate change. Um, all of a sudden, you had a bunch of activists in the Sunrise Movement, and then you had like a major climate candidate like Jay Inslee speak up. How influential were they in getting CNN to run this event? Oh, I think their influence cannot be overstated. I mean, the Sunrise Movement has burst onto the scene in this extremely powerful way. I mean, this is an organization that does not have a very large operating budget that it's only two years old. And um, they have, if you read almost any article these days in the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever the outlet is, there's a Sunrise person quoted. And so I just think they have been transformational. And, you know, what Inslee has brought to the table is that 220-page document that I have on my hard drive and look at regularly, which is really a roadmap to the future. So, um, yeah, I think that both Inslee and Sunrise 
guys put so much pressure on the DNC. I'm kind of surprised that the DNC didn't react more positively and see this as an opportunity. Um, but they didn't. And so instead, we had a bunch of journalists. Um, Brian Kahn, for example, was initially going to organize something. And now, in addition to the CNN town hall, this Friday and Thursday, I believe, MSNBC at in Georgetown University will be doing another event with some different candidates. So yeah, I'm, I'm really impressed that the um, cable news has actually stepped up and answered the call, because that's certainly not their history of uh, working on climate change. I love that. You look at Inslee's plan regularly. Some people like peek at <laughs> pictures of their kids. Some people look at pictures of the mountains and dream of hiking, but like you peek <laughs> at the, the Inslee climate plan. Yeah, it's true. I need to get a life maybe. I don't know. <laughs> oh no, you and I are the, like, we're cut of the same cloth there. Well, you know what? I was also in Ontario, Canada watching those debates. I was just north of Toronto in Huntsville. So we were not that far apart watching the debates, funny enough. So, Jigger, just one more uh, on the influence here and getting this town hall formed. You know, people like you for the last 15 or 20 years have been talking about the business impacts of clean energy. And that really hasn't moved many people in journalism, uh, particularly television news. And now all of a sudden we've got, you know, this activist movement that has changed the conversation. What's what's going on here? Well, I think things have gotten far worse, right? I mean, I do think that a lot of what is possible today is from the work that folks have done for the last 20 years, right? Today, I would say that the vast majority of candidates and their staff believe now that we can actually make this transition without ending life as we know it, which is a huge win. I don't know that that was the case when Al Gore put out Inconvenient Truth and then made his own announcement, remember, around the same time in 2007, when he said, you know, we are going to get off of all uh, carbon electricity in 10 years, right? And, um, you know, no one believed him back then, not the least of which was President Obama, who didn't believe him. And today, I would say the vast majority of these candidates are not now are now not fighting about whether we can actually do it, which was, I think, the what the capitalists brought to the table. Um, now the question is, like, whether they have the guts to you know, really bring the full weight of the federal government to making these changes happen on the timescale that we need. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's not that one message was more effective than the other. It just took that groundwork in the business community to create the solution so that people could point to them and say, hey, look, this action actually matters and we can do this in an economic way. Um, Okay, so let's talk about how the debate unfolded. Many people wondered whether it even made sense to like focus on a climate specific debate. There was a lot of conversation about whether this was even necessary. And I'm wondering if looking back at the CNN town hall and then looking forward to the to the MSNBC town hall, um, how productive has this conversation been? Um, Catherine, how, how productive do you think it was? Yeah, I think it was absolutely terrific because it really brought out the nuances of each of their plans and it and it allowed people to see how the candidates have internalized climate change and in context of their key issues. So Julian Castro, for example, put his in terms of immigration and you know, minorities and environmental justice. And you know, each person kind of took 
whatever their main issues were and framed climate around those, because those are the issues they know the mo- the best and have been focused on the most, but then allowing them, Andrew Yang, for example, put his in the context of like, first, we got to give people a basic income, and then they're allowed to think about how they're going to solve climate change. So everything was kind of in, the co- in that context. And I think it was really important to see that because we're not going to see that as we go forward in any of the other um, you know, full on debates, and certainly not when we get into the general debates. Leah, how about you? How productive was this conversation? Um, you know, I think it did two really critical things. Let's say nobody watched the debate. All right. It was just the people in the room. I still think it would have been an extremely successful event for two reasons. First, it caused campaigns to have to spend a lot of time prepping for that event. You know, they had to have plans ready. And you really saw, I mean, I was swamped in the days leading up to the debates with new plans coming out and journalists wanting me to comment on them because everybody knew they had to be prepared. They had to have a plan ready before they went. And we might have had several candidates never develop a climate plan if they didn't have a kind of deadline. It's sort of like when you have homework and somebody says it's due tomorrow. Well, then that's when you start getting the work done. Um, And then I think the second thing, which Matt O'Mildenberger actually pointed out, is that journalists watched the debate, right? They were all assigned to stay up till uh, 11 p.m. to watch the thing. And so I think it was an enormous education opportunity, actually, for a broader swath of journalists. There are, of course, people like us who live and breathe this stuff daily. But a lot of journalists don't know the nuances of climate policy like they might know the nuances of um, healthcare or immigration. And so I think this was like an amazing education opportunity. And the fact that uh, CNN did such a good job recruiting audience members and really uh, getting a great group of people to ask questions meant that the questions were quite substantive. I was less of a fan of CNN's own questions. I mean, could they have mentioned hamburgers another time? I don't think so. (laughs) It's like every single candidate was asked about hamburgers. Um, (laughs) But, you know, the people in the audience who were part of Sunrise, who were, you know, students, who were professors, there was like the last question to uh, Cory Booker at the end of the night was a climate scientist asking about geoengineering. I mean, it was just unbelievable. So even if all we had was the candidates get prepared and the journalists have to listen, it was a huge success in my books. And that isn't what happened. CNN actually got above average ratings for the event. So I think it was also a success in terms of a broader audience. Uh, you know, I I have to say that I thought the debate was fantastic for exactly the reasons why, that Leah and Catherine talked about. I think the part that I'm still struggling with is the Sunrise folks have done such a good job that I'm a little worried that some of these folks have gone a bit overboard in their zealousness for climate. And I'm trying to figure out how well they're going to do in the general election um, when all this, you know, B-roll is available to, to, you know, to pull back out. Oh, that's a that's a good point. So before we get to that, because I think Leah can speak to that, I just want to say that I thought it was productive because of the format. I initially scoffed at the seven hours. I think most of us did. Uh, but it turns out that like when you bring candidates up for 40 minutes at a time and give them a, a lot of time to speak on these issues, uh you get some really interesting stuff out of them. And it's not just a minute here, a 30 seconds to respond, just the horrible debate format that doesn't allow anyone to offer substantive ideas. It's all made for television moments. They brought out the best in these candidates very often. And I thought that was such a winning format. Um, so on to Jigger's point, Leah, 
what does this mean for the electorate? Like, how does the way Democrats are speaking about these issues stack up with what the electorate wants to hear? And did we see polling change in any way after the event? Yeah, so there's been some pretty remarkable movement. Um, I work with the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication. They do regular polls of climate change. Um, And there's been a pretty remarkable shift in the past nine months, uh, in large part because of Sunrise, as well as the youth climate strikes, which will be happening on Friday this week. Um, People are listening to the conversation a lot more, and they are beginning to understand the stakes. Um, You know, I think that people have woken up to the fact that we are running out of time and this is a big crisis. And that could also have to do with things like Hurricane Dorian. I mean, could you imagine that there was like an insane hurricane bearing down on the United States at the exact same time as this seven-hour climate time climate town hall? I mean, it's kind of stunning. So um, I think that Americans actually do have a big appetite for climate action. But I do take Jigar's point that when it comes to the general election, and some of the specific promises that have been made may divide some communities. Uh, so, for example, if you think about fracking, um, that might have been what Jigar was thinking of. Uh, you know, that won't necessarily be popular to ban or phase it out in certain places like Pennsylvania. Um, That said, at least from my perspective, I know some scientists or uh, people were a little freaked out by the idea of banning fracking overnight. But of course, that's never going to happen. Just think about the mercury rule. That was a part of the Clean Air Act amendments from 1990. That was, you know, passed in 1990 and not implemented until 2011. So, You know, if we're going to start a transition away from fracking, which in large part is about oil in addition to being about natural gas, uh, we are probably going to need to start on day one of the next administration. And that doesn't mean you have an implemented rule and you're shutting down all production on day one. That's a complete misunderstanding, in my opinion, of how change actually happens in the energy sector. But I take Jigar's point that just because that's not truthful doesn't mean that it won't be mobilized and weaponized um, by the right during the general. So... I think there is a bit of a risk where many candidates are running quite far left and kind of competing for one another. And I've certainly been vocal that I think some of the timelines and promises are quite unrealistic. Um, and, and that's not because I'm not a huge climate advocate and I'm not a Green New Deal supporter. I am. But we actually have to think through what uh, we can do over what timescales. Well, Leah, you know, I I uh, totally agree with you, obviously. I, You know, one of the things I'm curious about is whether um, – you know, part of this is squaring the science with, you know, the politics, right? I mean, I think the science is still saying that if we want to stave off the worst impacts of climate change, we're going to have to do it on these timelines. And, um, you know, the practical reality is that it's difficult to do. Yeah, you know, I gave a talk on Friday uh, at... uh at UPenn as part of a big Green New Deal event. The talks are online. And I showed visually the Biden, Sanders, and Warren plans. Um, And it's interesting. I just showed them how they are described on paper and basically drew a straight line out from where we are to where we need to go by the timeline. And the uh, Warren plan, which she had adopted the night before the debate, is the Inslee plan. And um, it's actually, uh, in terms of the historic growth rate over the last decade on renewables, it's been uh, 0.6 percentage points annually. And what that plan does is it multiplies that growth rate by a factor of 17, okay, 17 times larger. And then the Sanders plan, um, which is 
targeting 100% renewables by 2030. You know, many people or several people said to me, you're being disingenuous by deleting the nuclear fleet. But that is actually what the plan says. Maybe people could read the plan and decide if they agree with that. But they don't have a disagreement with me. And that actually involves a 25-time multiplication over historical renewable energy deployment rates. So I think people don't understand what these plans actually imply in terms of the physical changes in the world that they're talking about and the timelines that they're talking about. Um, And I think that when you unpack those things in detail, you start to see that, hmm, maybe the existing nuclear fleet is pretty important to getting this done. And hmm, you know, maybe we will have to think about innovating some new technologies or or keeping lots of different options on the table because, um, you know, it's not going to be easy to, to increase the deployment rate by 25 times over the baseline. And I'll also say that the difference between, for example, the Warren plan and the Sanders plan, it's actually that the Sanders plan is 50% harder every single year than the Warren plan is. So I think a lot of journalists and uh, advocates don't fully understand the implications of these different targets and timelines, they're they're very different. And they would have massive implications for the world if one version was implemented versus another. The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow sells the most inverters in the world. But being the leader in volume doesn't just mean focusing on quantity, it means focusing on quality. And it does that by building trust. SunGrow employs people like Nick Velcho, an applications engineering manager. Nick's job is to make sure projects are designed expertly and working at peak performance. The job takes deep technical expertise and attention to detail, which Nick honed in the military. Yeah, that's true. Um, I served for six years um, in the Navy as a fire controlman. Um, And contrary to how that sounds, um, a fire controlman is actually a weapons specialist um, and radar technician. Nick underwent years of intense advanced electronics training in the Navy. And then he took that expertise to the solar industry, where he's worked for over a decade, servicing the power electronics that make PV projects operate their very best. Keeping those SunGrow inverters running in tip-top shape, it's not unlike keeping everything running smoothly in the military. When, when you're in the military and you're working on the piece of equipment that you've been assigned to, whether it's an airplane, an engine, a weapon system, or even a rifle for that matter, you have to know it intimately and you have to know um, every in and out to the point where when it's not working the way that it should, you know it almost without having to diagnose it. Military professionals have been trained that way. We're, we're on time. You know, we, uh, we work hard, uh, we see things through to completion. There's rarely ever loose ends or open items that are left on an action item list. So from that aspect, when it comes to servicing equipment, um, veterans are really well positioned to contribute not only positively, um, but to kind of uh, shift the momentum in how service works. When you use SunGrow inverters for your solar or storage project, You aren't just getting the best equipment, you're getting support from the hardest working, disciplined, and most passionate people on the planet. The fulfillment and and the satisfaction that I get from my job every day, um, knowing that I'm contributing to a a positive, sustainable solution with a company like SunGrow um, is is really unbeatable. So I, I feel very lucky. And customers are lucky to have a guy like Nick keeping watch over their solar power plants. SunGrow will be showing off its inverters at Solar Power International in Salt Lake this September. 
Go check out the technology and meet the team at booth 2211 or click on over to sungrowpower.com. So I don't know if the natural gas, the fracking issue or the nuclear issue will really have that much of an impact. Maybe it will, but my sense is that this this election's going to be so wacky and so noisy that that they really won't be that important. But what I will say is that having followed the polling for, you know, the last couple of election cycles, it's pretty clear that talking about climate change doesn't hurt you as a candidate. Like you don't really get penalized by voters. You may not win over any conservative voters or many conservative voters, but they certainly won't vote against you because you're talking about climate change or a very small number will. So I don't know that this extensive conversation about climate change is going to do anything to hurt these candidates. Um, I think that's totally right. And it's what all the polling has shown. And I think for a long time, the Democratic establishment has not understood that fact. For example, during the 2018 elections, there's a story of somebody running in Southern California, a Democrat, and he wanted to run on climate change and his campaign didn't want him to. And he went and looked up those Yale maps that are downscaled to each congressional district. And he said, look, this is what my district actually thinks about this. I'm going to run on this. So I think that the party is really far behind what the actual evidence shows. And right now there's new polling coming out that actually young people who are conservative are deep concerned about climate change, too. So it's possible that the GOP will start to have to change its tune as well. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Lee. And I think it's really important in the primaries to get uh, to really be presenting these ideas to the base of the voters that are, that are going to decide who is the eventual candidate and to see how important this is. Because, man, once they get in, if they get into office, they immediately have to start paring down what they're going to do. And you know, we need to make sure that whatever comes out of this primary um, process is actually going to be put in some way into reality. The, the part that I find a little bit annoying, frankly, about all of this is that when you think about what the, you know, the ECB in Europe has recently announced and then what everyone's looking at the Fed to do in the U.S., we're clearly in a weird economic state right now where we need a lot more um, real dollars pumped into the economy as opposed to all of this like negative interest rate, cheap debt, etc. And the Europeans haven't really doubled down on decarbonization. Instead, they're like just buying more cheap corporate debt. And I think the Fed sort of has a similar point of view here in the US. And I didn't see a lot of the Democratic candidates really tie that together, right? I mean, like building up the real economy, building up, you know, middle class jobs, like and actually doing physical work around how you, you know, decarbonize our planet um, is is something that could get us out of this funk. That That's a limiting factor in a lot of these conversations within the television format. And I think that's because of the way that journalists frame the questions. The audience questions were great, but as Leah mentioned, there were so many questions about whether or not they're going to, you know, ban eating meat and whether or not they're going to make you, you know, drive electric vehicles or they're going to ban plastic straws. It was it was all about sacrifice. And the conversation and the reality has shifted so dramatically. But many of the questioners are still stuck in that scarcity mindset. We're going to take things away from you. And rather than having this big, robust 
economic conversation. And the candidates, I think, fall prey to that because they get stuck responding to it. And and uh, it, I think it changes the way that we have the conversation. You know, Warren did a very good job, in my opinion, of pivoting. She really rejected the individual framing of the issue, which I think is beautiful. I mean, there's there's been a lot of debate on Twitter, which is sort of a parallel universe, not the actual world. But within the environmental community, there's been so much emphasis for the past several decades about individual behavior change. That's certainly how I got started in this. I, 15 years ago, was running individual um, energy conservation programs, trying to get people to save energy. And through that direct experience, I realize like, oh shit, I'm not actually going to change the problem by getting people to turn off the lights. And she did such an excellent job of pushing back against that framing when she said that, you know, this is exactly what the big polluters want us to be doing. They want us to be debating cows and straws and things like that and forgetting the fact that pollution is really coming from a small set of bad corporate actors who have been lying about climate science for decades. And so I do feel that she has done an excellent job of framing this around opportunity, like Jigar was saying. I mean, the one thing about looking at these plans is that apart from feeling completely overwhelmed, which is how I feel like, wow, how are we going to do that this fast? Um, it is an amazing economic opportunity. I mean, were we to actually do these things, just think about all the people we would have to employ to build the stuff, to deploy it in the world, to, you know, create the wires that would connect it all. I mean, and then, of course, to shut down all the existing plants, like there is just so much work to be done. And um, I think she has done a very good job of kind of framing framing this around economic opportunity. I agree. That was one of the best moments. So let's talk about the candidates then and their framing. Leah, who did you think had the best performance? Um, you know, journalists wrote about it after the fact, and many people said that they felt Bernie Sanders did the best. And I think that Bernie is a very... Um, morally clear communicator. You know, he has a very strong point of view. I think he comes from a, a really good place of wanting to protect people and recognizing the climate crisis is so dire. Um, so I think, you know, he did he did perform well, but th there are just some things that I um, don't necessarily agree with him on his plans. And so for me there, when you actually think about the substance of what he's saying vis-a-vis -vis the problem, I don't always agree with him. I think Elizabeth Warren performed performed extremely well with a couple exceptions. Um, she, you know, she had only just endorsed the Inslee plan the night before. And it's really crazy to me. I mean, I couldn't do 40 minutes on healthcare policy or immigration policy if you asked me to tomorrow. I could definitely do way more than 40 minutes on climate and energy policy. I could probably do like days on it. But, um, you know, what we're asking these candidates to do in this kind of a forum is really hard. And I think you could see with Warren that, you know, especially because she had just adopted new ideas the day before, um, that she made a couple stumbles. So, for example, I think she uh, misstated what the Inslee plan actually is in terms of targets and timetables. And so she ended up coming across as more anti-nuclear than I think, uh, you know, probably she intended to be given what the plan is that she has put out on that. Um, so, but I think that apart from that one little fumble, she was so clear about, you know, how this is an economic opportunity, about how this is about holding polluters accountable. Um, I think she did a really excellent job. And unfortunately, um, 
Cory Booker was probably the other one that I was a big fan of. He was the last one of the night, so I don't think everybody was up like I was at 10, 20 p.m. Uh, watching him. But he he really communicated clearly and cared a lot. But he, too, had a little fumble at the end with that geoengineering question and somehow ended up talking about how he's a Trekkie or something like that. But overall, um, I think Cory Booker really shone um, a lot. Um, that's what I would say, that you know th- those guys were sort of standout performers in my book. You know who I thought had really uh, done some reading and brushed up on his substance was uh, Beto. I I thought he had internalized much more what the messaging was. I always think of him as, uh, you know, a mile wide and a quarter of an inch deep. But he he actually seemed like he had tried to learn a lot about this and to be able to answer things really forthrightly and in a more detailed way than I had heard him speak before. So I was I, I thought he did a pretty good job. Yeah, you know, Beto seems to have really been impacted by activists. He's, you know, he talked about reading David Wallace Wells's book. He was one of the candidates who went activists went and bird dogged him and said, will you sign the no fossil fuel money pledge? He did and gave money back. And I think especially as a Texas politician, you know, it seems like he very much personally has internalized what climate change is and cares a lot about the issue. So I agree. He's completely overperformed in my books. You know, the two people I thought that did better than they got credit for was Pete Buttigieg. I think his uh, ability to bring it back to his faith, I think, is going to end up serving him pretty well in uh, primary states. The other person I think that did really well was Amy Klobuchar. And I think the reason for it is because I think she really tried with Mayor Pete to bring this back to sort of farmers and Midwesterners and like their role in building up the, you know, resilience to carbon emissions and figuring out how you actually, you know, use that can-do attitude. And I thought that that was sort of lost in all of the sort of reality television show reporting. The only thing about Amy Klobuchar is that I didn't, she talked, she had this sort of phrase where she said, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to be honest with you. And I think that's fair. And, you know, I think she was trying to be honest, but I didn't see that she was kind of pushing the bounds of what's possible or really trying to um, chart an ambitious uh, timeline forward. And that was something that concerned me because, of course, we're only in the primary, let alone the general, let alone when it comes to governing. I just didn't come away with a feeling like she understood the stakes and was as ambitious as um, I would hope that she would be during the primary. So why does this matter, aside from the fact that we're dealing with you know, a planetary crisis. I mean, in terms of politics, there are not that many voters who are just voting purely on climate change. So when we're dissecting who did better, who did worse, why does that matter? And and does it really matter as we get deeper into the primary and then ultimately into the general? My husband and I talk about this a lot because we lived through and my husband was very instrumental in the whole Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade bill 10 years ago. And, you know, he says what happened, of course, that everybody knows is that it went to the Senate and it died because, you know, Obama was able to get one thing done. And what was the one thing? It was the Affordable Care Act. And that was super important. But he put all of his political chits into that. And the concern is, which of these candidates won't do that again? Which of them doesn't have something that Trump's climate change. You want somebody who will get the get climate change done. And I know Sanders has said, oh, we can do more than one thing at a time. 
it is really hard to do that because you only have a certain amount of political clout at the beginning in those first hundred days. And who is going to do this when they become president? Part of this is I just think the notion that we're going to pass some sort of large cap and trade bill that's economy wide was fanciful to begin with, right? I think if you were going to do it again, you would just do carbon emissions on, you know, cap and trade on the utility industry sector or something like that, right? I just think when you think about how we're looking at moving this forward now, and Inslee, you know, lays it out pretty well on uh, Leah's computer, um, is, (laughs) you know, like through the farm bill, through defense appropriations, figuring out how to get the GSA to get their head out of their ass and actually start buying stuff. Like, you know, all of the the different facets that 20% of the U.S. economy represents within the spending of the federal government, now probably up to 24% or so, um, you know, that to me is is how you solve it from the federal government level. And when you look at what we're doing at the state level, whether it's California and then, you know, forgetting about the clean energy standards, which other people have passed, but the low carbon fuel standards with which now New York State and many other folks are looking to copy. And then you've got other policies that folks are pushing on agriculture. The Wall Street Journal today had a great piece on how um, there are firms that are paying farmers not to sequester carbon um, because it's more productive for their land. And so I think there's just a lot of these things that you do through the course of the federal government business that's different than passing cap and trade. Yeah, I mean, I think you've both made very good points, actually. I agree 100% that this has to be the number one priority of the next president, assuming they're not Trump. Haha. <laughs> um, you know, I just, I, we've all been doing this for a while. We've all seen the failures of Wax and Markey and, you know, complete abdication of responsibility on the part of the federal government, let alone the fossil fuel industry. And we just, we have to turn the ship around. So I do agree entirely with Catherine on that. Um, And I I also agree with what Jigar is saying that, you know, for example, Elizabeth Warren, I think the second, yeah, the second plan that she put out on climate change was about greening the military. And a lot of the lefties hated it because they said, why are we even talking about the military? But to me, it's like, well, it's $700 billion annually, and it emits a ton of carbon, well, many tons of carbon, actually. Um, And so actually, you need to have solutions to decarbonizing that sector. And it is a, it's a lever that the federal government has. And of course, we know that the military has been involved with lots of really interesting innovation, and it can be a sort of testing ground for ideas. And under the Obama administration, um, there was an energy czar within the military who was working on, for example, microgrids, decarbonization. So I think that was actually quite a smart plan. And it speaks to what Jigar is saying about let's just use the apparatus of the federal government and sort of mainstream climate. But I will say one other thing, which is that I do feel we need a really big climate package in Congress to do, for example, a clean electricity standard. And I think that marrying it with social policy, as the Green New Deal suggests, is a smart move. I've got a paper that we haven't that's under review right now, which shows that uh, empirically it's more popular with the public. But more generally, when I've studied sort of these huge omnibus bills in Congress, whether that's the Energy Policy Act of 1992, where we first got the production tax credit, or the Energy Policy Act of 2005, where the investment tax credit was, or I was listening to your last show, um, and uh, your previous guest was talking about how transmission also had some interesting 
components in there. There's all these little things that get buried in really giant bills in Congress. And that actually allows um, things to happen that opponents don't necessarily pay attention to. So I call that in my research the fog of enactment. So the Waxman-Markey bill, for example, many people remember it as a cap-and-trade bill, but it had tons of other stuff in there, as I'm sure we all know. You know, a clean electricity standard, workforce training, uh, lots more of this sort of just transition stuff and even Green New Deal style stuff that, uh, that people don't really really realize. So to me, I think, yes, we need to use the federal government and procurement and mainstream climate. And I also think that Catherine's right, that we need a really big bill, ideally if we had the Senate and the House, um, that does a whole bunch of stuff at once and hopefully sneaks through some things that end up being really consequential for decarbonization. Can we talk a little bit more about the differences between the voter questions and the moderator questions and why they were so different? Um, I'm curious if if any of you have a least favorite question of the night and a in a favorite question of the night. And uh, uh, Catherine, what was your pick for the worst question of the night? Yeah, I hated the whole Wolf Blitzer continuing to say, are we going to have to drive EVs as if they're like golf carts or something? And Andrew Yang just saying, well, wait, wait, wait this is a good thing. You'd want to be able to do that. This would be super fun. So I hated that. It just showed some of the traditional reporters just did not know what they were asking and didn't hadn't seen any technology recently. Um, my fa- my favorite questions were really the audience. Some of them were so complicated and really dug into issues. And one of my favorite ones was a question about insurance from somebody who said, "My home is in a 500 year floodplain." And I have to buy FEMA insurance and it goes up by 18% every year. What do I do? And that's a huge issue. You look at, you know, we had a show about this, about Nebraska that was experiencing unbelievable flooding in areas that were not considered floodplains and they did not have insurance. And so to me, the insurance question is huge. And that gets to sort of this underlying economic issue about climate. But the, the people asking the questions ask them in a way that really show how this would affect regular people. Leah, how about you? Uh, Best and worst questions? Well, to go back to what Catherine was saying, I'm pretty sure that question was to Bernie Sanders. And I think he actually did a good job of fielding it. He seemed to have particular opinions about the National Flood Insurance Program, which was cool to see. Um, So my least favorite questions were the hamburger questions. I thought I was going to, like, tear my hair out. Um, It was just it was like do a super cut of all the hamburger questions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was like a loop. It just kept coming up. And and it was so funny. Many people said, like, it's like every candidate had to, you know, Know, go to the altar of the hamburger gods and say, like, I like a hamburger. You know, I'm a hamburger eater, except for, of course, Cory Booker, who's a vegan. <laughs> Poor guy. Uh, who had to be like, I won't make you a vegan. It's just absurd, really. Um, and of course, nobody was like, let's feed the cows some seaweed and maybe they'll stop putting so many methane belches into the world, right? Like, there are actual ideas for how to solve that problem that we're never engaged with. But anyway, um, My favorite question was probably to Biden, who we have not talked very much about. I didn't think he did very well, by the way, in terms of performance. Um, He was very much on defensive. Uh, He was sitting down. He was not very energetic. Um, And so one of these students, uh, Brian Kahn at Earther wrote a story about it. He was a PhD student and he was he got a question approved by the program. And then last minute, it was supposed to be about Exxon New and the history of climate denial. And then at the very end, he pivoted and said, oh, and by the way, Joe Biden, 
Biden, you're supposed to go to a fundraiser with a natural gas executive tomorrow. And what's that about? Because you took the no fossil fuel money pledge. And um, it really put Joe Biden on the defensive. Some people said that's when his eye started bleeding, for example. Um, I don't know if that's true. I didn't even notice it. Uh, that my dad was like, you didn't notice Joe Biden's eye bleeding? But anyway, I'm, I'm busy with the substance. I'm not really into the form. But anyway, um, and, you know, Anderson Cooper, who was the one doing the questionings there, which was excellent because he was, in my opinion, the best one there uh, from a moderator perspective. He really had the data. You know, he had the name of the guy and he fact checked it when Joe Biden tried to say, oh, that's not what this is. And I wasn't told that Anderson Cooper pushed back and he was like, um, no, I'm pretty sure that's accurate because I have it in my hands. And I think it really... Um, pushed Joe Biden in terms of clarifying what he actually thinks about fossil fuels and the whole concept of keeping them in the ground. You also saw that exact same kind of moment play out in the previous debates where Inslee was still in the race and he and Biden got into sort of a back and forth. And Inslee said, well, what are you going to do about coal? When are you going to shut it down? And Joe Biden said, we'll figure it out. And I just think that those moments where we actually see uh, Joe Biden pushed to articulate what exactly his plan is, that's when we start to see some of the weaknesses. And at least for me, that reveals, uh, to go back to what Catherine was saying, a lack of prioritization on his part and a lack of really understanding the depth of this challenge that we have before us. So climate change hasn't really made TV in recent years because no one's covered it. And all of a sudden uh, we get seven hours of coverage. So the big question is, does it make good TV? What do you all think? Catherine, does climate change make good TV? Political TV, that is. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed it. And I think the 1.1 <laughs> million viewers who tuned in enjoyed it. But it's even more than that. As Leah said, it tees us up for, you know, using that content elsewhere. You know, it's just as podcasts are not like listening to radio in the moment, Um this is really something that you can turn to later to, to sort of dig in and see what your candidate believes in. Yeah, I thought it made pretty good TV. I think the one thing I'm hoping to see out of the MSNBC town halls is that people start to realize that everything is connected to climate, right? Whether it's health or foreign policy or refugees or, you know, some of these other initiatives, which I thought Julian Castro, by the way, did a great job on tying immigration to climate change. Um, and so I think that you'll see more of these connections come out the more that we do them. But I thought it was pretty informative. Yeah, I mean, climate change is an epic struggle. I mean, it's just the biggest story you could imagine. And like Jigar just said, it is tied to everything else. And so um, I'm hopeful that the candidates can start to connect with people to tell stories about sort of villains and victims and, um, you know, make policy come alive in ways that really speak to people. Um, so that's the great promise of this. Um, and I don't think we've achieved it yet. But making the candidates study up to, to do it for 40 minutes, I think, has really put us on a pathway where we'll hopefully be able to communicate the stakes more clearly to the public. Because you have to remember, politicians have huge microphones. You know, a lot of what we see in public opinion research is actually that what politicians say ends up being what the public thinks. So the more that activists are able to push politicians to clarify and articulate, the more that the public will start to understand this issue in greater detail. Well, we don't have seven hours. We only have a short amount of time with you wonderful people. So unfortunately, we have to start wrapping up the show. But I thought that the CNN town hall event 
made up for years of lack of coverage. Despite many of the issues I had with the framing of the questions, it was really refreshing to see them um, have a substantive conversation. And hopefully MSNBC will do the same. And surely it gets these candidates thinking about this issue in a much broader way. So let's shift to our free electrons and and talk about what we're thinking about outside of the climate debates. Uh, what's happening in your jobs, and your daily lives? What are you reading? Catherine, what's your free electron this week? So the Washington Post and Kaiser Family Foundation just released a study of teens. And they pulled a sampling of 18-year-olds and then also younger teens, ages 13 to 17. And they found that most teens, like 57%, are really scared of climate change. And that one out of four of them are actually taking action. Even those that are not of voting age are becoming much more active in the issue. And I think this is really important to our future, of course, which is that as we are talking about, you know, who is voting, um, it's, it's been known that young people are terrible about getting out to vote. And yet in 2018, over 30% of young people went, got out to vote. And that was, in a midterm that is historically low levels of voting. So if we can get young people engaged much earlier in the issues and get them to start getting active on them, we will have informed active voters when they are of voting age. So I was, I was heartened by the study. Indeed. Well, it's the younger voters that are putting climate change front and center and are the reason why we have the town hall and the conversation that we're having today. A jigger what is your free electron? Well, so I, like many people, were following the Bekaik uh, crude processing facility drone strike in Saudi Arabia. And uh, oil prices are markedly higher uh, today, which I think it's the highest increase that the oil prices have ever had. Um, hey, give us a quick recap of what happened. Very brief. Well, one of the largest crude oil processing facilities in the world is in Saudi Arabia. It processes roughly 6 million barrels a day. And... Um, it got attacked by multiple drone strikes uh, such that, you know, it sort of was on fire and the Saudis are now scrambling to try to figure out, you know, what to message people as to when it's going to come back online and and that kind of thing. But, you know, there's only about 100 million barrels a day of oil uh, globally, right? So 6 million barrels a day of processing capacity is a lot. And um, even though we do have some spare capacity in the world, um, it will probably lead to higher gasoline prices for everybody and diesel prices, which then provides a price signal to all of our electric vehicle buyers and everybody else. And it also, you know, highlights the fact that you have a lot more vulnerability in the supply chain than people were acknowledging beforehand. So I think it's um, it's going to be looked back upon as a big shift in, you know, global thinking around oil and, you know, our dependency on it. Leah? Your free electron. Well, just to add to Catherine's before I say my own, of course, um, there's big strikes happening on Friday. Uh, I'm going to be in New York where Greta Thunberg is striking, um, but all around the world, there are young people striking on Friday, which is very exciting. Um, my own free electron is that I have bizarrely started a book club on Twitter about climate change. I don't know why I did that, but I did. And I just finished the second book yesterday, Overstory by Richard Powers, which I don't know if people have read, but it is 
amazing. I mean, it's about sort of activism, climate change, trees, science. It's just unbelievably compelling reading for the changing climate. And we're going to be talking about that the day this podcast comes out on September 18th on Twitter. And then the next one we're doing is on October 2nd, and it's um, Bina Venkataraman's new book called The Optimist's Telescope. And I'm very excited to dig into that as well. So um, yeah, I'm just reading a bunch of climate books because clearly I have no uh, life outside of climate change. So I decided that I would just read more climate books. But if people want to get involved, they can just basically uh, join on the conversation on Twitter. I love it. You're providing a very important public service for all of us. Definitely going to check that out. Um, I was going to go outside this weekend, go hike around the woods. And before I did that, though, I had to go uh, check out the Department of Health uh, in Massachusetts to see where they are spraying for mosquitoes because we are having a major breakout of eastern equine encephalitis. Uh, this is, you know, a really dangerous disease that unfortunately can affect infants greatly. And I have an infant. And so when we go out in the woods, we have to, you know, be careful about where we're going because we've uh, had a bunch of people here in Massachusetts die this year. And um, this is the kind of thing that you see in a world with a changing climate. So what happened last uh, winter, last fall and winter, we had one of the wettest falls on record. Uh, the temperature wasn't cold enough to kill a lot of mosquito eggs. And so more mosquitoes were left over. And we just had more mosquitoes this year that are now uh, carrying the triple E virus. And so it's... I think one of the underappreciated impacts of climate change, just a slice of what people are going to be thinking about in coming decades in a warming planet when, you know, there are diseases out there that they don't have to think about today, but that will be on their doorstep. So I'm so sorry to end the podcast on such a horrible note, but it, it's those are the kinds of things that really get me thinking about the impact of climate change on my front doorstep. And that is going to wrap the show. Thank you, Leah, so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm a huge fan of all of you guys, and it's just a huge honor to get the chance to talk with you about all these big ideas. Yeah, you are wonderful. You're now part of the gang gang. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That's right. One of the few people who've stayed for the entire episode. Uh, Check out Leah Stokes on Twitter. Uh, She's got a ton of analysis there. And you can check out her book club, too. So Dr. Leah Stokes is an assistant professor of political science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Jigger Shah is president of Generate Capital. Uh, Thank you, Jigger. Have an awesome afternoon. We'll talk to you soon. I look forward to it. I'm going to see our good friend David Roberts uh, tonight at a uh, energy Twitter happy hour. Oh, tell David I say hi. We just hung out like the last three days. He's great. I will. I will. I think he's probably just stayed on the East Coast after your great conference. Catherine Hamilton is the chair of 38 North Solutions, and I hope you're hanging out with awesome people as well. Absolutely. Thank you. (laughs) We'll catch you next time. You can find the links to all the resources we talked about in the show notes. And of course, you can sign up for our newsletters at greentechmedia.com slash newsletters. Daniel Waldorf helps produce and edit this show. I'm Stephen Lacey with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. This is The Energy Gang, a production of Greentech Media. Thanks for being here.